turned and walked away. Where are you going? I asked. Home, David replied. I don't belong here. And as I watched him go home, I felt like I was letting liquid sunshine trickle through my fingers. I wanted to call him back, but I knew he wouldn't come. I checked for the grass for glass and other nasty things. And when I found a patch of grass and nothing else, I sat down and fought, then lay down with my eyes closed. Shiraz is a gentle provincial capital in southern Iran. Two and a half thousand years ago, the mountains around it were the heartland of an empire that stretched from India to the Mediterranean. In them lie the vast ruins of Persepolis, once the Versailles of its kings. This autumn, Shiraz and Persepolis have provided the setting for a very special sort of festival. to talk about mm, I want to talk about changing registers the passaggio and how many times the voice flutters between here and there I want to talk about why they don't want the confrontation and turn away and if by turn away you meant turn the cheek then let's interrogate that live 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 I want to talk about dreaming of losing a tooth and fatigue as just a surface. I want to talk about gospel music as a force that moves, what it means to be moved and the mysticism surrounding it. I want to talk about the chaos of the page and how it's one of few places we can truly be honest. But I want to talk about lying to the page though and lying to myself, policing the page and policing myself. Page and self become synonymous. But really and truly, I want to talk about the teachers I could find, the teachers that are lost, and the system that does or does not feed them. I want to talk to Harwich. Hi everyone, I'm Samra Mayanja, an artist and writer based in Leeds. Earlier you heard part of the poem Cloud Busting by Mallory Blackman, read by my super cool niece, Chauncey Shepherd, And following that was Shinazi, Turaj and Bahari at the Festival of Arts Shiraz Persepolis. So, it's been a while since I made one of these and I thought I'd just give a little recap. This is Edging Home, an ongoing and sporadic podcast project where I, your girl Samra Mayanja, trek to various British coastal towns to ask people about change. This particular podcast is part of the Caribou Loop series commissioned by Caribou Projects, a fab contemporary arts organisation based in Bristol. Make sure you have a listen to the other commissioned podcasts in this series. So we've been to Bridlington, we've been to Withensea, and this time we're in Harwich, Essex. Also, huge, huge, huge thank you to CMR Lee for the gorgeous new intro music to Edging Home Podcast. Yay! And if it weren't for the voices, and if it weren't for the voices running through me, and if it weren't for the shackles, and if it weren't for my shackles, I would be free. Who would I be? Take my time and take your time and taking time, take my time, yes, they're running with me. Take my time and taking time and taking time, take your time, yes, you're running from me. Who would I be? Last night, I dreamt that my tooth fell out. It wasn't a struggle, but I felt it shake and move slightly, and then it came out. I was lying, no lying, no laying, on a coffin-sized bed. The capsule bed, like the ones in Japan, with the insides coated purple and blue, like the walls of a neon shell. Someone, a man, maybe a white man, said, Oh no, you're bleeding a lot. 
So I held my mouth to an unused sanitary towel and then contained the blood. They, I'm not sure who they is, but they told me to go to the hospital, so I tried to gesture with the hand that wasn't holding the unused pad to my mouth. Notice here how I keep needing to remind myself that the pad is unused. It's a dream. I promise it's a dream and not a recounting of an event. (laughs) Anyway, I held my hand up, pointed to my mouth, then made my hand roll as though doing the hand gesture for an elaborate curtsy, really fast. Who could I be? Who could I I'm not sure what happened after that, but now I realise that the hand gesture that is part of an elaborate curtsy may not be a clear reference, and teeth falling out in a dream apparently relates to processing loss and not coming into money, as I had thought in the dream. It felt good for my tooth to just slip out like that, sudden and painless. Who could I be? I moved to Harwich from London first when I was about five. We left when I was about seven and came back when I was 11. If my life there was expressed as a kind of adaptation of a contemporary music piece called Stripsody by American-Armenian composer... Kathy Barbarian, which sounds like this. Then Harwich, all those years ago, would sound something like this. Ships built, ships leaving, ships over, shipping, shipping container, tiger on the loose from Colchester. Samuel is the only other black person on the estate and he is an economist. No place to go but the train to London. 52 minutes. Oh, Glen Paradise. No way. Crunch, 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 crunch. Into a one stop on the corner. Go to college and be an economist. The Mayflower, Jamestown, my sister works at Safeways. Then Morris, a.k.a. Morrison's. Community church. (coughs) 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 The adult... Learning. Splash, 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 splash. Center. On the hill. The library where nothing happened. Small spoon, big fork, small fork, big knife, small knife, layout. I swear, the pastor's wife has seen my soul. Smash, 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 smash. Mmm. Mmm. Fuck the people that tell you to smile on demand. Food. Ross Kempon gangs, till late. Dreaming big and dreaming far. Help mum out soon. Regimental way. James Blake keeps me golden blue. 
My brother and me fight sometimes. I dream of being a video vixen. One, two, three, four. She's got a smile that it seems to me Reminds me of childhood memories Where everything was as fresh as a bright blue sky All right, Tommy, you're the oldest. I'm counting on you. Come on. She's got eyes of the bluest skies as if they thought of rain. I hate to look into those eyes and see now. Nice vibrato, buddy. All right, all right, Alice, let's go. It's so flat. I can't even, I didn't even know. You don't even look good while you're singing. The worst thing I've ever heard. This is $1,200 a week for voice lessons, and this is what I get? Okay, I'm going to save it with the solo. Bow, bow, I'm dead. And I can sing high like this. And I can sing high. Jesus! Oh, 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 sweet love of mine. There we go, swerving a car crash without a scratch and finishing the acapella beautifully. Really does sum up my family. Overcoming it all. I want to quickly talk about the Mayflower and shipbuilding and Harwich. A history of leaving, making things to leave on, and the underground tunnel to the continent. Leaving and running, running and leaving. Running is my new favourite word to describe the feeling of creative energy that means you don't want to, cannot want to, and won't imagine stopping what you're doing or making. Running is like a sweet, sweet snack, like the way your tongue grips onto a drink that holds the perfect amount of sugar in it, slurping and sucking the goodness until suddenly it stops. Sugar reminds me of sugarcane and the cane, plantations and punishment. I think of the new world and how it was only new to some, which brings me back to the Mayflower and shipbuilding and Harwich. This year marks 400 years since the Mayflower set sail for the new world, taking 102 pilgrims across the Atlantic to the place we now call Plymouth, Massachusetts. There's no record of where the ship was built exactly, but we do know that it rested in Harwich for several years before leaving in 1620 for Portsmouth and off, off, off across the Atlantic, led by Captain Christopher Jones. So, in 2016, the Mayflower Project, based in Harwich, hired more than 600 carpenters and engineers to build a replica of the Mayflower with the plan most interestingly, for the replica to sail across the Atlantic in 2020 to meet those that descended from the pilgrims. Apparently, more than 30 million people can trace their ancestry to the 102 passengers and approximately 30 crew members aboard the Mayflower when it landed in Plymouth Bay. Wow, 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 wow. (laughs) Wow. However, the plan to build an ocean-bound ship was cut in 2019. Maybe it was bad management, maybe it was lack of foresight, or maybe it was something else, says James Kelly, a writer on the project's blog. So instead of this long journey, there will be a land-based replica and a railway museum in Harwich at some point. I can't say that I'm particularly gutted that the voyage won't be happening, because I feel like in some ways it's a kind of bolstering of this romantic myth of the pilgrims and the beginning of America, without a kind of, like, critical aspect to it in any way. But also, how do I know? I don't know. I wasn't part of the project. Anywho, side note. I remember as a child driving past Morrison, seeing adverts for two, three and four bedroom houses in a place called Jamestown Close, and hearing that some of the kids in my neighbourhood didn't go to my school, but went to Mayflower Primary School. Let's talk about the Virginia Company. The Virginia Company was a joint stock corporation that in some ways was much like modern-day corporations that are publicly financed. Now, the Virginia Company gathered financial investment from a a number of different individuals 
and channeled it into the settlement of what would become the first English colony in the New World. This would be tremendously important over the long run. Although it started small, it set the stage for British settlement and the New World. And in turn, it established patterns which would lead to all sorts of institutions, uh, including representative government in the New World, but also the institution of slavery and many of the patterns of trade that would shape early capitalism. The village of Patuxet, now called Plymouth in the state of Massachusetts, was visited in 1614 by John Smith and another ship in his fleet, captained by Thomas Hunt. The Mayflower lot arrived in 1620 to the village of Patuxet, which had been populated for thousands of years by the Patuxet tribe's people, a tribe within the broader umbrella of the Wampanoag. By the time the Mayflower pilgrims stepped foot onto this land, many of the Wampanoag had been wiped out by European-brought diseases in an outbreak known as the Great Dying. The colonisers had some immunity, but the Native Americans were highly susceptible. The English saw, by 1600, what Spain had won in the New World over the previous century. The Spanish had stolen enough gold and silver from the Aztec and Inca empires to create a massive global empire, one that stretched from the Philippines to the Caribbean to much of South America. The English wanted in on some of the action, and in 1606, King James I granted a charter for the Virginia Company to a group of London investors. Now, the Virginia Company was not only a joint stock corporation that provided a means to collectively finance the settlement of a new colony on the North American mainland, it also implied the creation of a sort of representative government, initially with the owners of stock voting and ultimately with the settlers themselves being permitted to create their own assembly. And that was one of the first institutions they created in 1607 when the first three ships arrived in what they called Jamestown. Jamestown, the largest settlement, was established in 1607, but Europeans had been in this part of the world earlier. In the 16th century, European merchant ships had sailed the east coast of America. Many captains of the ships increased their profits by capturing the Native Americans and selling them as slaves. But let's don't go too far in thinking of Virginia settlers as if they were either Wall Street hotshots uh, or modern-day politicians uh, from the time that they hit the Virginia shore. The reality was actually a little bit different, and it was heavily influenced by the feudal British background. In fact, many of the early settlers were gentlemen who wanted to remake their fortunes by stealing solid gold goodies from the Indians around them. Unfortunately for them, perhaps, uh, the Virginia Indians didn't have the same amount of precious metals as the Aztecs and the Incas did. And because the gentlemen were so interested in stealing and so little interested in growing food, most of them starved to death in the first years of the colony. In fact, by 1610, only 71 of the first 500 settlers were still alive. And those who lived had gone through what they called the starving time, uh, in which many of them died of disease and hunger, and one settler even killed his wife, cut her up, and ate her. In 1614, Captain Thomas Hunt kidnapped and enslaved many Wampanoag. Tisquantum, also known as Squanto, was one of those to be captured, transported to Europe and sold to Spanish monks, who tried to convert him to Christianity. Squanto was later freed and managed to make it back to Patuxet, dying there in 1622. The, the settlers preferred robbing the Indians to working and the Indians didn't particularly care for that. In fact, in 1622, the Indians launched an attack which almost wiped the entire colony out. But they survived, and along the way, they had learned two things that would actually make the colony successful over the long run. The first was that by growing tobacco, they could produce an export crop that was phenomenally popular in European markets. And the second was that by buying the contracts of uh, indentured servants, immigrants who wanted to come from the old world to the new world and were willing to uh, promise five to seven years of labor for someone else in order to have their passages paid for. By doing this, they could create a labor force that would grow the tobacco that would make the earliest settlers wealthy. In addition to indentured servitude, in 1619, 
slavery had also arrived in Virginia. That's when a Dutch ship carrying 20 enslaved Africans appeared in the James River. The 20 Africans were sold to settlers, and although slavery took a while to become entrenched in the Virginia uh, environment, by the late 1600s, it was the dominant form of labor in the tobacco fields. Those on the Mayflower continued the process of theft of native lands, an assault on native people's culture, and the genocide of millions of native people. Hence, what is known as Thanksgiving to some is a national day of mourning for thousands of the native people. I keep thinking of how this dynamic is still with us. Those who give thanks for a series of events, whilst others mourn the effects of them. So Virginia set the stage in many ways for British expansion into the New World and for the ultimate uh, patterns of the United States independence. And beyond that, Virginia also set the stage for the development of Western capitalism in some important ways. So again, this year, 2020, marks the 400th anniversary since the Mayflower set sail. The Mayflower 400 project has been established as a collaborative telling and commemoration of the voyage, including a programme of events by British, American, Dutch and Wampanoag organisers. A lot of the marketing around it seems to use the language of inclusive history, which I'm interpreting or understanding as a history moving away from the glorified white American innocent origin story to a complex web of intertwining, contesting, challenging histories of multiple peoples. And whilst I think this project is important, I also think we should reflect on how the Wampanoag and many other indigenous tribes have been silenced in the telling and commemoration of the voyage. And let's be real, are being silenced all over the world right now in relation to a slew of structural problems that once again boil down to capitalist expansion as it did 400 years ago. In 1970, 350 years after the Pilgrims landed, Wamsuta Wampanoag, also known as Frank B. James, was invited by the descendants of the Pilgrims to commemorate the voyage. Before his speech, the planners asked to read it, so Wamsuta allowed them to do so. Once they'd read his speech, they instead handed him a speech their PR people had written. Wamsuta refused to read it and so did not speak at the event at all. Here's a section from the speech that Wamsuta wasn't permitted to read that day, read by Robert Wesley Branch. History gives us facts, and there were atrocities. There were broken promises, and most of these centered around land ownership. Among ourselves, we understood that there were boundaries. But never before had we had to deal with fences and stone walls. But the white man had a need to prove his worth by the amount of land that he owned. Only ten years later, when the Puritans came, they treated the Wampanoag with even less kindness in converting the souls of the so-called quote-unquote savages. Although the Puritans were harsh to members of their own society, the Indian was pressed between stone slabs and hanged as quickly as any other quote-unquote witch. And so down through the years, there is record after record of Indian lands taken. And in token, Reservations set up for him upon which to live. The Indian, having been stripped of his power, could only stand by and watch while the white man took his land and used it for his personal gain. Coming back to this podcast after more than a year since the last one, I kept thinking to myself, is this how I did it? Is this how I make the podcasts? As though they had been made in five minutes of sweet, sweet joy and laughter and nothing else. 
but I resisted returning to the last ones until the very, very end. Ultimately, the way I write these podcasts is through a series of free writes, collecting of sounds and then collaging them all together with literally anything that comes to mind. What I've realised through journaling is the amount of times I police my writing in my private journal, how much I edit the idea before it's put to the page and how much I surveil the words on their way to the page. As one word comes out, the next one is on its way. But if it's truthful, too exposing, or I perceive it to be dangerous, it just keeps swimming around with the other ideas that aren't allowed out. I'm managing a thick, thick, foggy texture, thick, thick pool of ideas, dewy and moist and sludgy. A dense wood in my mind where these policed ideas bob about unwanted, with lumps of moss and pink life and abandon. So my words are trying to learn to walk silently through the woods. They call it a fox walk. So you go down with your knee, which is a good training for your legs. And then you take the front foot and set it down on the ground with the outer ball of your foot first. And then you roll in to the side, to the inner side of your ball of the foot. And after that you come down on your heel. Listen. Listen to how those toes, those words, glide unnoticed. Listen. Listen to how truths hit the page, one by one and simultaneously. Listen. When one has a middle-of-nowhere mind, it's not because they're in a daydream or dream dream, but it's because they're thinking whilst dead. Wow, sharp turn. (laughs) Sharp turn. As Migos might say, screw, screw. Sharp turn there, Sam, sharp turn. Anyways, being invisible and not wanting to really walk through my memories of Harwich and be seen there, as in be seen in my memories, or maybe not to walk through the town in my memories and to see myself. My identity there was always about leaving, going to other places at any chance, dreaming of being elsewhere, identifying as other, being identified as other, being so desperate to leave. And now that I've fully left, I don't feel that I have any solid ties, really. It's not a space to return to for comfort or reassurance. I'm kind of touching on but avoiding the subject of friendship entirely, because perhaps, well, no, I think definitely that that is the subject of a podcast of its own. But now I'm thinking about what it would be like to be a celebrity as opposed to being invisible, a maker of culture, hyper-visible and completely hidden. 
In a binge of Wendy Williams, I'm reminded of the Real Housewives of History. No, I meant the Real Housewives of Atlanta, but I wonder who the Real Housewives of History are. Perhaps what I mean are the housewives in reality TV history, like Sharon Osbourne, Kris Jenner, Nene Leakes, and so on. I'm thinking of Wendy because... And when I say Wendy, I mean Wendy Williams. We're not friends, so I don't know why I just dropped her first name like that. But I'm thinking of Wendy because I love the way she drops the tea whilst drinking tea and moisturises her hands whenever she needs to. She tells everything like it's a secret you want to know, otherwise you'll be out of the know somehow. I remember having a conversation with a friend a few months ago about how rumour can be a legitimate way of research following the kind of stories that get told in passing or the kind of stories that get told as though no other stories exist. The rumour is the stuff that people don't believe and we ask, or I think we have to ask, what is in the rumour? Why do I believe it and why don't you believe it and vice versa? Are there truths in it and where do they possibly lie? I'm scared to get there, scared to start, scared to listen to the recording, scared to walk through the memories. Okay. Hmm. Um, I don't like listening to it. I'm reminded of how I feel sometimes that I'm not good enough and the doubts that I had have float back. In this podcast, unfortunately, you get to hear my inner workings without any context. What I'm talking about listening to is a recording of myself and my high school maths teacher singing Aletta Adams' Holy is the Lamb in the church that my family used to go to. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. It was a place where I learned what it felt like to be moved and how music could move. I knew then that the church wasn't my home but I love to sing in company, to be held and to be seen and to be invisible and to feel the sounds move through my body and to be silent and hear everyone sing around and for the room to be full of sound. I was sad to hear that Mr Azamoa had left my high school. Speaking of physical abuse from students and teachers looking the other way, Hard work year on year without any recognition, the pressures born out of academisation, more work and less funds. Socioeconomic issues left unaddressed that resulted in students really struggling, not just at school, but generally. After miserably making my way around the town, along the seafront and up the road to my high school, round the corner and past the co-op, I arrived at the church I waited for a few minutes before Mr. Asimo showed up with his son, Judah. We went inside and had to lock the doors behind us in case people came to the church asking for money. Year seven's bum six off the year 11's floor. It never rains, there is no sky, no ceiling, just living between cracks. Throughout the performance, I thought about my brother and my dad and Mr. Azamoa and Judah. This bright air around them both, and their sweet cheeks. I kept hoping that Judah would grow up to be himself, over and over and over again. Which kind of reminds me of something my high school form tutor once said. He was called Mr. Soans. His voice often bounced into a high pitch and shocked him. He loved coffee and chemistry. I can't remember if he had a moustache or not, but I have either a strong sense that he did (laughs) or somehow it makes sense in my mind. Anyway, Mr. Soans said to me once, Samra, you're preparing for a job that doesn't exist yet. But it's not just a job, but a world, a situation, a friendship and so on. Each day is like a rolling improvisation. I wondered whether he held on to this mantra when he had to leave the school because his wife was sick. I bet he was really sweet to her. I hope he was kind to himself too. 
you're preparing for a world that doesn't exist yet. You're preparing for a world that doesn't exist yet. You are preparing for a world that doesn't exist yet. You're preparing for a world that doesn't exist yet. You're preparing for a world um, that doesn't exist yet. You're preparing for a world that doesn't exist yet. I lost sight of this at a point and tried to make myself into what I thought they wanted, but soon realised that that was impossible to meet or match. Fear of doing what I know that I can do. I've been told that my voice is low. Now there's a fear to sing high, fear of trying to be me, so I'm being what people expect. I'm getting distracted. Ultimately, I sang a song with my maths teacher and left feeling disappointed. This entire hour can't be spent on you talking about your fear and disappointment. Yes, it can. But what I will do is give you all a break to talk about something else. But just real quick, Mr. Asamoah spoke about his teaching method being critical, but that he always started with encouragement followed by critique. So no break then. While singing, I gave up somehow. I could feel the glitz leave my eyes and I just couldn't wait to leave. There is no Hollywood ending. I left feeling that way. The only thing that stopped me crying the whole five hours home was thinking about the playful back and forth that Judah and his dad were having. Judah would tap gently on the walls, keeping time on morale high. Year 2035 and Mummy Won't Cook. Chips! But mummy, we want broccoli. You get a bag of potatoes for the price of one floret. Fuck broccoli and fuck Jamie Oliver. Is that me in the future? Yes. And here's a letter you wrote to Jamie as a youngster in 2008. <laughs> Dear Jamie Oliver, do you think you can possibly reverse academization, austerity and its effects on the education system and the ridiculous pressure, squeezing of young people plus teachers under a horribly competitive, exam-heavy, STEM-focused, capitalist sausage factory and a deeply unequal public education system that exacerbates the ills that we're told it's supposed to disrupt? Jamie, do you think you can do this as fast as you got rid of turkey twizzlers? Warm regards. Little Miss Samra Mayanja. And then there's Miss Lima, who I had hoped to call to ask her, what could it mean to be a teacher? But I couldn't get in contact with her. A few months ago, I found myself participating in a workshop talking about non-familial ancestors, or people who we see as ancestors but who aren't directly related to us. And I thought of how Miss Lima had given me some of my non-familial ancestors in a Tesco carrier bag in year nine. Just before the Christmas break, she'd lent me several books by Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou and Mallory Blackman and many more. A bag full of only black women writers, to me, Samra Mayanja, the only black girl in my entire school at the time. I met some of my ancestors in a Tesco carrier bag given to me by my year nine English teacher. I loved to read from a very young age and would disappear in the library. My older sister would revise for her exams by asking me to quiz her and I wanted to read the books she was reading so I read and wrote and read and wrote and read and stored all my books and stories in a pink suitcase that I rolled around the flat. The pink suitcase, I think, is still part of my process now. Collect, store, carry, collage. Or I think of it as finding ways for disparate things, voices, to exist together. Even when they don't know each other, they've never met, or perhaps they don't agree. But there was something particularly poignant about meeting some of my ancestors in a Tesco carrier bag, given to me 
by my year nine English teacher. It felt like hearing a writer read their own words, like hearing Toni Morrison reading her own words, like hearing her read from Sula, like... He'd run across the street to Teapot's mama, who, when she heard the news, said, Ho! Like the conductor on the train, and was about to take off, except louder. And then she did a little dance. None of the women left their quilt patches in disarray to run to the house. Nobody left the clothes halfway through the ringer to run to the house. Even the men just said, mm, when they heard. The day passed and no one came. The night slipped into another day and the body was still lying in Eva's bed, gazing at the ceiling, trying to complete a yawn. It was very strange, the stubbornness about Sula. For even when China, the most rambunctious whore in the town, died, whose black son and white son said when they heard she was dying, she ain't dead yet. Even then, everybody stopped what they were doing and turned out in numbers to put the fallen sister away. It was Nell who finally called the hospital, then the mortuary, then the police who were the ones to come. So the white people took over. They came in a police van and carried the body down the steps past the four pear trees and into the van for all the world, as with Hannah. When the police asked questions, nobody gave them any information. It took them hours to find out the dead woman's first name. The call was for Miss Peace at Seven Carpenters Road. So they left with that, a body, a name, and an address. Returning to this particular memory of Harwich and school and Miss Lima reminds me of learning that there was so much to explore in how people spoke and broke language. Learning what the personal could do and how poetry is essential, and how the poetic is trusting in the coincidentals. I carried the bluest eye with me everywhere, and remembered sobbing on the toilet at my aunt's house, reading it there. I couldn't put the book down. I read, I know why the cage bird sings, on our leather sofas till I had to peel my skin off its surface and the meaning of the title unravels each year of my life. I played Amy Winehouse's two albums back-to-back over and over as a backing track to the entire Noughts and Crosses trilogy, and once again, I sobbed into my pillow each night that I read those books. You see, I know I've met an ancestor because it's like something in that text loves me, or wants to know me, or we are speaking to each other. And so the conversation rolls on for days and days and days, even after I finish reading the book. And I know I've met an ancestor because the rhythm of the words keeps me close, telling me of times that they were forced to do time too quickly, or when their grandparents could fly, or how the world would look without fixing. And I know it's an ancestor because something takes me back to that moment in primary school, when I took a blue book off the shelf and read it to myself at break time. And that book was the first book of poetry that I chose to read. It was Cloud Busting by Mallory Blackman. When I opened my eyes, clouds filled them, clouds so near, I could almost reach out and touch them. Time to go cloud busting. Two was better than one, but one would have to do. Cloud busting, staring upwards, letting the clouds fill not just my eyes, but my ears and my mouth and my nose. Touching the clouds, breathing them, sensing them, being them. Davy taught me how to do that. Cloud Busting by Mallory Blackman. Read by my niece, Chauncey Shepherd. What's most exciting about the fact that I met some of my ancestors in a Tesco carrier bag given to me by my year nine English teacher is that I can pass that bag on to my niece, I can pass that bag on to friends, I can pass that bag on and on and on and my pink suitcase full of other ancestors too. But also what's somewhat bittersweet is this isn't exemplary of the education system. 
a collection of books that the teacher knows will nourish and hold and care for that individual child well beyond high school. And not just books, but education that is centred around the child, children's experience of school, as opposed to some standardised system of schooling. Education without a punitive logic. Get out of my classroom. Get out, get out, get out. You're so rude. How dare you speak like that in my classroom? You're heading straight for detention. Suspension, now. Get to the head teacher's office. I think my year nine English teacher understood that the school is not an apolitical space and this notion of balanced views or balanced curriculum is clearly bullshit. Where and how resources are dispersed is telling of what the Department of Education view as important, which is telling of and informed by a specific ideology. I mean, what would it really look like to deeply address the conditions that children live in? And what would it look like to reimagine education and begin to create the conditions for this to be possible? A reimagining that begins with asking questions like who is valued and who isn't, which students are disposable and which aren't, what are teachers and communities having to provide because the state refuses to? Ross Kempon gangs, till late. Dreaming big and dreaming far. Help mum out soon. Regimental way. James Blake keeps me golden blue. My brother and me fight sometimes. I dream of being a video vixen. Okay. Back to Kathy Berberian, the American-Armenian composer that inspired what you just heard. I met her online in the archival material documenting the Festival of Art, Shiraz Persepolis. I first saw archival footage of the festival at the Whitechapel Gallery, and I was struck. I stayed in that tiny room for hours watching uh, drummers from Burundi, classical Japanese singers... French ballet and artists from all over the world gather in the Iranian city of Shiraz. And I wondered, what would have to change in the world to make this kind of festival possible, desirable, imaginable, happen? What would Miss Garib have thought of this? What would she have thought of a festival that tried to bring artists from all over the world together, for the world to meet in Shiraz? Miss Garib was my IT teacher, who I couldn't find any contact details for at all. She was a very strict teacher with a sharp voice. But I really admired her. She was quick. She smiled, not out of politeness, but only when she was truly happy. And most importantly to me at the time, she was incredibly, incredibly elegant and stylish. I thought of her that day in the gallery because I thought that she might have been there. She encouraged this sense in me that the world was huge and that I should see it all, speak every language, know everyone, and know what I didn't know. I could feel somehow that she'd seen the world and that she knew some of its secrets. The Festival of Art Shiraz Persepolis took place in Iran between 1967 and 77. But after the Iranian Revolution, the festival and archive material 
was deemed decadent and un-Islamic, so archives were removed from public access after the festival was banned in 1979. But since 2010, a project called Archaeology of the Final Decade have been finding and digitising material related to the festival. And with every image and video digitised online, I look for Miss Garib there and hope that I'll see her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's much, much better. Good. Now, that's like, like how it will sound like in there. Okay. That's a wrap, folks. Yay. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Judah, for your services. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can now put that on your CV sound recording. Huh? No, 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 you, you, were, you, were, you were doing this. That counts. Now you can press stop. Oh, no, 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 not that one, but that one. So, that's all I've got for you today. Yay. <laughs> there will be more Edging Home podcasts in the future at some point. Um, I'm not sure when exactly, but if you loved it and want to support the project, that would also be fab. Reach out to me on any of my social media things. Um, yeah, thanks to Mr. Azamoa and Judah for your time. Uh, it was deeply, 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 deeply appreciated. And huge thanks to Rowan Jack and the Caribou Projects team for all the support. Much love to you all. Bye. <laughs>